I believe that the social, social norms, human behavior is a gigantic missing element in almost everything that we're doing. Whether it is a corporate design project, whether it's a government policy, whether it's an awareness campaign, I think that we're relying on a really limited set of tools that were basically just designed to move individual widgets. And I think that if we, if we look at group behavior, if we look at social behavior, we can achieve a lot of the things that we haven't been able to figure out otherwise. You're listening to FUSAPOD, a podcast about creativity, community, and the things that matter. I'm Lishan Huang. It's not you, it's us. We're talking about social norms, the unspoken and often invisible rules that govern how we think about and act in our world. Innovation is about shifting the ways that we behave, but social norms reinforce the status quo. Whether you're in business or activism, learning how to identify, understand, and rewrite social norms is the key to making change. Now back to our guest. Uh, so hi, I'm Andrew Benedict Nelson, and I am with my colleague Jeff Leitner and Lee Sean here. I'm one of the folks who put together this book, See, Think, Solve, A Simple Way to Tackle Tough Problems. And we created this book essentially out of our efforts to teach social change in a, a new and a fundamentally different way. So I'll explain this from my, my perch. I'm a, a lecturer at USC's School of Social Works, the Suzanne Dvorak Peck School of Social Work, in the Doctrine Social Work program. And in that capacity, um, we're essentially helping folks put together plans and concepts to tackle some of society's biggest problems. And this approach exists to help them really have a, a strategy in doing that, not just to be processing more clients or raising more funds, but really to take a look at our society and address something like how could we actually end homelessness, um, not just you know, address more, uh, you know, more homeless clients. How could we really eliminate this as a category? I recently met with a student who's working on anti-recidivism issues and looking at uh, how that would apply to the category of, of sex offenders. And you know, essentially, how do we even think about the problem of uh, keeping somebody with a sex offender designation out of prison when that will follow them the rest of their lives? So those kinds of really core social problems. So what this book is and what our work represents more generally is really a strategic approach to taking that on. And it, it differs from most uh, else of what is out there in a couple of respects. The main thing is that the target of the method is social norms, the kind of unwritten rules of human behavior. And we really look to change one or more of those norms that are holding a tough problem in place. And that is something that is beyond um, activism, something that's beyond awareness. We're really talking about, in a way, rewriting the code of society. So how do you do that? Well, the first thing you need to do is understand the norms that are holding the problem in place. And then the second step is cultivating some kind of deviance from those norms, um, either inventing one or finding one that exists and using that to eventually subvert and replace the norm that is out there. And our view would be that basically all social progress that has ever happened followed some version of that process where there was 
you know, a norm like uh, it is okay for children to be working in factories, which was a completely acceptable condition in, say, the 19th century, um, to now when it's not. And it's not just because of laws. It's not just because of, you know, changing economic incentives. Really, there is a consensus view in our society that children should not be working in factories. So that is what we attempt to create and cultivate and engineer through this method. So it's interesting that the subtitle of the book is a simple way to tackle tough problems. So what you're talking about is actually, I mean, it's hard, it's not easy, but it is simple in terms of understanding what a norm is and then figuring out ways to change it, right? So help us understand what what you guys meant by the simple way. I mean, look, any great strategy is, is pretty simple at its core um, because you're trying to you're trying to hold on to one concept through a you know vast thicket of information and signals and things you're trying to manage and but you know any great strategy is as simple as you know capture the enemy capital or win 50% plus 1 or you know it's a very simple goal right collect underpants and then profit <laughs> Is this a strategy? It's, it's a South Park reference. Oh, okay. I, I'm, yeah. I, I'm, not up, I'm not caught up on my South Park. I, first couple of seasons, I'll be all right. I don't get it. You see, phase one, collect underpants. Phase two, phase three, profit. Oh, I get it. So you, that's why it's simple, is because really, what you're trying to do, you should be able to boil down to a couple of lines. Now, figuring out what those lines are is pretty difficult. So this is where the, the method of this comes into play, because the, the real difficulty with social norms is you, you really can't see them, especially when you are a part of them. And it's also very difficult to imagine a world where they don't exist. So something like imagining a world where, say, uh, where, well, let's just use homelessness, where homelessness is not a category where it is impossible to imagine someone becoming homeless is very different from saying, oh, we reduced the amount of homeless, uh, you know, the number of people who are experiencing homelessness by 20%. So how would we possibly get there? Well, you have to ask, what are the norms that allow homelessness to continue to exist and how, how might we change them? So what we provide in the book is essentially a way to see the pieces of a norm that you don't know is there. And uh, we have six of those, so I could walk you through them if you want. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, so the, the six things that we encourage people to look for are, we call them actors, history, limits, future, configuration, and parthood. And each one of these things is a kind of clue to the norms that are um, going on in any situation. And each one of those things can also be changed to open up possibilities of deviance. All of the things that make a norm, there are all sorts of different factors that influence you know, what people believe and how they behave. But these six particular things are useful because of the possibilities for change that they allow. So that's why we, we encourage people to focus on these six particular things, because they're kind of like six switches that you can turn on and off and mess with in different ways and see what results you produce. That's why uh, I guess I should say we also teach this in conjunction with design thinking, because when you have the knowledge of these dynamics, um, you can go into kind of a design thinking mode and kind of play around and say, you know, what would... Uh, what would our organization or our city or our state or our country be like if we changed the actors or if we changed the limits of the situation? That's interesting, this 
the way that you dovetail it with design thinking, right? So I, I teach design thinking as well. And one of the keys to design thinking is understanding your users, your stakeholders, using human empathy, right? To understand what their needs are and how you can service those needs, whether you're developing a commercial product or service or a social service, right? So we're using the example of homelessness with design thinking, for example, we could redesign homelessness services, right? How do you get people into shelters? Or how do you feed people who are experiencing homelessness? Whatever that is, maybe in a more compelling way, a more efficient way, a more humane way. Yeah. And it seems like the way that it complements this innovation dynamics framework that you have is you're thinking about more of a systems change about like, how do we think about homelessness in general? And how do we change the norms, not just of homeless people and how they act and behave in those norms, but how people who are not homeless deal with that. Is that on the right track? I think that anyone could use, you know, that, that basic course of empathy with a homeless person and what their lives are like. And I, I would, of course, encourage people to look into subpopulations and personas within, within a broad category like homeless. For example, the lives of homeless families are very different from the lives of homeless you know, people who are essentially on their own. But let's say that we've, we've got that kind of user research on you know, the population of the homeless. Um, I think that where, where innovation dynamics would come in is you would ask what social norms are shaping and affecting the conditions that those people are facing. For example, I mean, some of the ones that are right off the bat are there's, you know, a, a huge amount of stigma and avoidance connected to the condition of, of being homeless. But uh, one of the things, I mean, just to use this particular problem, because when you dig beneath the surface, you find out that actually a huge amount of homelessness is due to the problem of social isolation and people essentially running out of social capital. If, if you or I faced a, a significant um, economic and personal setback, we'd still have a huge network of people where we could basically crash with them. And so in most cases of homelessness, and I should say I, I learned this through um, the Center for Social Innovation in, uh, in Massachusetts, through some work with them, basically folks have reached the end of their rope in terms of their social network. So one of the things that we would look at is kind of what different social norms allow for that to happen and what social norms could we change to prevent that from happening so that no one would ever run out of people that they could rely on. So in some ways, identifying that norm of, you know, homelessness is not just about not having a place to stay or not having money to pay rent. It's about running out of social capital. In some ways, that's a reframe, mm -hmm. right? So for example, yeah, I've been in between apartments before, both in terms of Hurricane Sandy or just my lease running out and having to wait a few days to move into my place. And so, like, I guess technically I was temporarily homeless, but not in the sense of sleeping on the streets, right? Because I had sofas to crash on and family to fall back on if I needed to. And so that reframe of homelessness from kind of lack of money or lack of lodging to lack of social capital already helps us look at the problem in a different way, which seems like a, a way of opening up the space for innovation. Yeah, so uh, I'll use one of our dynamics to dig in on this. So one of, them, one of the dynamics we use is called configuration, and configuration is essentially the, the categories that you would use to sort information about something. And so there's a pretty stark uh, configuration connected to homelessness, which is it's an either or category. You are either homeless or not in the way that you're either pregnant or not. When in fact, there's a probably a spectrum of homelessness. But we shape our social norms of how we treat and respond to the homeless 
as if there is this absolute drop-off. And in some ways that prevents us from having empathy with folks. But it certainly makes it hard to see this social isolation problem. People imagine all sorts of things of like that somebody made a decision to become homeless when in fact no such thing ever occurs, right? It's just when you reach the end of your rope. But uh, so something like configuration, looking at the, the categories that we use to sort information, that helps us see, okay, what are the underlying uh, kind of unwritten rules of this situation, the unwritten assumptions that we bring to this situation, and how could they be different is the main thing that we try to ask with this. So with configurations, is that sort of like a taxonomy of like how we label things will determine how we act around those? Yeah, absolutely. It's funny, taxonomy was one of the names that we auditioned for configuration, but the, the reason why we picked this one in the end is that um, it, it draws attention to the arbitrary nature of these categories and how easily we reshuffle them. Um, and in fact, we do it all the time, right? You go from one grocery store to another and things are sorted in a different way. And so when I work with students, I try to emphasize that all of these categories were created by someone at some point for some purpose and we could use different ones and get different results. Right, it's sort of like if you go to Hawaii, the soy sauce is not in the ethnic food section because you know everybody uses it, right? And so thinking about like what is a default and what is othered and, and how those things get placed into categories. Yeah, absolutely. And when I when I do the lecture on configuration in our course, I say, you know, let's be real, racism is configuration gone bad. I mean, that's that's all it is is we found ways to sort other people and then we took them way too seriously. That's a good transition to maybe another example that we can look at. So a, a sure. timely one in New York and I guess across the country and in the world, we recently celebrated Pride, which coincides with the anniversary of the Stonewall riots, right? When LGBT patrons at the Stonewall bar decided that they're just not gonna take police harassment anymore. And fast forward 50 years later, now we have what some people criticize as this corporatized parade where politicians, regardless of their orientation, make a showing. The police force is there as well to march in the parade, not to harass the people marching. And in some ways you can consider this a win in terms of the shift of social norms. Other people sort of think about it as kind of cultural appropriation or corporatization. But I think it's an interesting story of how norms shift, right? And that how there can be the mainstreaming of something in 50 years is both a long time and not a lot of time. Yeah, I mean, the, the change in norms around LGBT issues is probably exhibit A for the fact that norms can change and have changed in our lifetimes and are in the process of changing. I would say that pride going from a fringe event where you would have questions about what a mainstream person participate in it was probably when I was a kid to now when people are all falling over each other to get into pride right. and participate and have that label. And yeah, when your retail bank and fast food restaurant turn their logo into a rainbow for the, for a month, you know yeah. that there's a certain mainstreaming or change of norms, right? Let me, let me talk about Stonewall for a minute because I think that that's actually a great example of the history dynamic. I think it was during the Obama administration, just as a unit of time, where we really came to, I think that people came to shift to see Stonewall as a part of American civil rights history. Mm -hmm. And that 
that is an example of, um, okay, is this part of something that belongs to the history of this country, the story of um, our own norms and what we can take pride in? You know, I mean, I'm just a, another, uh, another cisgender white dude, but I would say that the shift in tolerance and acceptance and integration of LGBT communities has, has become a part of my American story over time of, of what it means to be a part of this country and have the values that we have here. Uh, and, and in fact, what makes us different from other, some other places, right? That's also a, a configuration issue. But part of the way that you can see that happening is folks understanding, okay, yeah, Stonewall is a part of American history. And things like like the the pink scare at the CIA in the 50s of, um, you know, essentially outing employees are, are dark episodes in our history that I would say 10 or 15 years ago, people would be unaware of at all. So you can tell where the norms are going and, and how they work by what we incorporate into our own stories. One of the things that stood out to me reading about how you guys talk about history as one of the innovation dynamics is that, yes, facts matter of what actually happened, but you're also interested in essentially the stories that people tell, right? Because things like talking about Stonewall as part of the canon of civil rights and all of these sort of things are about, in some ways, configuration as well, like what you put in, what you take out, yeah. and how you tell those stories or how people interpret those stories. Can So can you help us understand and unpack a little bit more about that? The whole reason why we have history as a dynamic is because people bring the, the past to their understanding of the present. William Faulkner said the past didn't go anywhere, it isn't even past, right? And so when we figure out, you know, what are we doing in this room? What are we doing in, um, you know, in this office, in this city? We bring a backstory of how we came to be here and what this is all about. Now, it turns out almost no one's backstories are the same. Um, and they add different events, they remember different things, they remember the same things differently. So when you ask someone something as simple as, hey, how did we come to be here? Or um, what series of events led you to the situation that you're in now? Essentially clues to the norms that are shaping their behavior just come spilling out. And if somebody says something like, you know, like uh, Ron Swanson on Parks and Rec says, you know, America, history began in 1776 and nothing else matters. Uh, well, you can see they have a certain take on the world. If you don't view 1776 as the most important date that ever happened, then you have a different take on the world. So just asking people what, what led us here will bring all that stuff to the fore. Now, uh, what, we, what we know through our work is that actually histories can be, um, can be changed and can be consciously changed. And Stonewall is actually a great example of that. I think that you could put this um, to Obama himself. At some point he said, we're going to talk about this as part of the legacy of this country. And simply by making those choices, by doing that, you affect a shift in the norms around an issue. History began on July 4th, 1776. Everything before that was a mistake. So we've talked about homelessness, we've talked about LGBTQ equality and how history changes or how people think about things change and then norms change. Another key in your framework is this idea of deviance, right? And so deviance sometimes sounds like a bad word, but we also have positive deviance. And so help us understand deviance and how that relates to norms and these other dynamics. 
norms are shaping everything we do. Um, social norms shaping everything we do. We're shaped by hundreds or thousands of them in any given moment. Um, you know, cues from the people around us in society. But they're not laws of nature, right? They're just human decisions. So, in fact, departures from the norm are happening all the time. And some of them just happen randomly. You know, sometimes you you're you know, wearing the wrong color t-shirt and you look funny in your group and people kind of make fun of you, but it isn't intentional, right? And then other times people are breaking norms um, because they don't agree with the values or whatever it would be. So this concept of deviance, deviance is behavior that departs from the norm that actually has the potential to undermine it. And you can see that through the structure that we lay out of these six dynamics. You can see, all right, this has the potential to change the actors who make up this norm or the, the history that people bring to why they behave the way that they do. The key is um, it, it's almost always better to find a naturally occurring deviance simply because, you know, it's an organic system. Synthesizing something, something new um, is really hard work. Um, but if you already see, okay, look, um, you know, to take this same example, there are people who are getting together every year and commemorating something like Stonewall. You can say, all right, that is unusual, and you didn't read about that in your American history class. What if we did? What if we took these commemorations that are already happening and incorporated them in the mainstream? And actually, that's how you get pride, isn't it? It's by people saying, what if we, what if we amped up this thing that is already naturally occurring? I don't know anything about the commemoration of Stonewall. I mean, I'm assuming that you know, five years after, it probably wasn't a huge deal. You know, it's probably a group of people who just remembered that this happened. But you can imagine going back in time and saying, if we took this naturally occurring deviance and made it the center of a gigantic event, well, how that, how that would change society. Mm -hmm. And we probably have things like that that are occurring now. Just to take one example, uh, the child separation that is going on right now um, on the southern border is, at least, you know, strikes me and many people as an unconscionable thing that is occurring. You know, the equivalent of what Stonewall was at the time. But if we look at, you know, where could this go? How could we talk about this differently in the future? How might we commemorate and, you know, help people connect with these kinds of events? You could imagine changing the norms around this to the point where we could say, you know what, this is actually completely unacceptable for the American government to do. It's interesting to see there to the contention of history, right? When you have some people who say, well, this is not the America that we know that separates children from their families, but then you also have people who push back and be like, well, slavery and residential schools for native peoples and, you know, all of these other things and how these things are contended. So I, I guess I'm curious from your perspective as a historian, but also co-author of See Things Solved, like how do you see these contentions in history as maybe clues or things that can help us move forward with changing norms. Yeah, um, so this is one of the reasons why with the history dynamic, we put so much emphasis on storytelling. I'll give you an example. Juneteenth, I grew up not even knowing what Juneteenth was, right? I learned as an adult what it is. You know, a, a day to commemorate the end of slavery. Well, you can factually know what that is, but whether that is a part of your story of what America is, you know, the, the essential elements of the story um, really changes your perspective, whether you consider it a core element or not. And I think that one of the things that is happening is that a lot of people are really, maybe I should say white people, are coming to realize what a multiracial, multicultural history of America looks like. 
that in, say, 1880, there were all sorts of different things going on for different groups in different points in their development and figuring out what that means. It's one thing to know that factually. It's another thing to make that a conscious part of your history and incorporate it into the way you behave and the way you treat other people and the way you process information. And I think that basically what's going on right now is a shift in which people understand, okay, yeah, the the border has been a dangerous place for families of color for a long time. We're, we're processing that in new ways, we're making sense of it in new ways, but it's not a new phenomenon. I, I think that actually there is more to be learned from the fact that so many people outside of the Hispanic community are shocked by it than the phenomenon itself, if that makes sense. That, that we're in a time where it actually is possible for, you know, the white suburban housewife to say, you know what, that's not okay with me, that that would be happening. Where, uh, now not everybody is, lots of people aren't. But I would say that in, say, the Operation Wetback era of the Eisenhower administration, that, that could not even be, uh, that would not even be on the radar of something someone could possibly be concerned about. So you see a kind of shift in norms there of like, okay, what belongs to me and my, um, my like orbit of concern? And so, you know, people are coming to learn, okay, yeah, and that's a part of my history too. So since we're talking about histories, maybe we can shift the history part to how these innovation dynamics came about? Um, so I would say that there are basically three phases of the history. Um, the first was a thing that we did from 2010 to 2014 uh, called Insight Labs. And Insight Labs was a nonprofit organization that basically existed um, to help nonprofit and government bodies when they were stuck when they had basically run out of strategy and run out of experts to talk to who could possibly help them with strategy. We're really facing kind of core existential concerns. And so what we would do in this group is we'd put together 12 to 15 interesting creative individuals along with um, us, the co-founders of the group, put everybody in a room for half a day and just say, we're gonna solve this. Most of those sessions yielded really interesting things. You know, a couple of them didn't go anywhere, but I would say 90% um, were pretty successful. And eventually we started looking over the body of work and saying, um, what, what were the common principles of all this other than just getting a bunch of smart people together? And we began to notice some patterns in um, where the conversation would go and how we would generate solutions. But we were really just using it internally. You know, one of us might lean to the other and say, oh, this is just like the time we worked with NASA, you know, even though it's a problem of art museums or whatever. So in some ways it's a design project, right? How do you design these conversations? How do you harness the collective intelligence of these experts and stakeholders that you bring into a room for a few hours? That is generous to us. <laughs> it was, it's generous to us because we didn't really know what we were doing. But we, so we noticed this after the fact. Then the second phase of development was trying to teach these things to others for um, several years and really just kind of come up with a system to convey what we were doing in these rooms to other people. And at first we were trying to teach them literally how to do the same thing of here's how to bring together a, a group of you know, smart and interesting people. Um, eventually we realized that the that group of people was just a hack to get to different interesting points of view that could be arrived at through this method. So essentially what we've published now lets people do that 
whole kind of method, you know, sitting by themselves in a room if they ask the right questions, um, which is what I love about it so much. Uh, just the third phase that we're in right now is, I would say that the all of the the philosophical foundations of the method are sound. You know, we have a good reason to believe that this lets you tap into social norms and how they work. And essentially, I spend all my time thinking about how to more effectively teach this and convey this to people, which is really how we got to this book, because we realized that there was a challenge in just getting people to see the norms around them. And so that's why the book is called See Things Solved, because that is its intent, is that people can see, oh, okay, my whole world is shaped by social norms, and they could be different. So let's talk about how to do that. I believe that the social, social norms, human behavior is a gigantic missing element in almost everything that we're doing. Whether it is a corporate design project, whether it's a government policy, whether it's an awareness campaign, I think that we're relying on a really limited set of tools that were basically just designed to move individual widgets. And I think that if we if we look at group behavior, if we look at social behavior, we can achieve a lot of the things that we haven't been able to figure out otherwise. So that is what I view as the future of this book, is trying to get this set of ideas into almost everything. I think that the, the reason we started where we did is that people's lives and the, the things that they try to do are really powerfully shaped by these social factors. And many of them are not even aware that it is happening. Um, they don't get that these are you know, group or cultural decisions that are completely shaping their lives. And looking at the six things that we describe in this book simply gives them the knowledge, the perspective to see that that is going on. And that alone, I think, provides a huge amount of, of really cognitive relief to see, oh, okay, the reason I can't get ahead of my job or the reason why people won't listen to my message isn't because I did anything wrong. It's that there are these unwritten social rules that are affecting my world. I think we give people an opportunity to see and ultimately change those, but it starts with just being aware of them. So the Twitter version is, it's not me, it's us. <laughs> yeah, and um, I like that you say it's us because we often participate in the norms that are holding us back in ways that we have no idea through the way that we choose to interact with people, through our feeling of what we think is appropriate. I think that actually Me Too, you know, hashtag Me Too, is one of the greatest examples of disrupting that norm because certainly, I mean, I know probably dozens of folks at this point who have spoken out in a Me Too fashion. And I think that some of those same folks would have said, you know what, I would not have considered it appropriate for me to tell this story in the past, right? But they made a conscious decision, decision to shift the norms by saying, this is something I'm going to talk about as a part of my public identity. And we're still seeing all the consequences of that. And if you look at that, if you look at the beauty of that movement, it really is in its collective impact. It's not one person had an interview and we all became aware. It really was everybody moving on it all at once. And a norm fell away. and probably about a week. It was really an amazing thing to watch.
in a week and 10 years, right? Because there was right. the, the woman who had started it 10 years ago and it took the sort of high profile case of women who had been abused by Harvey Weinstein to turn it into a thing, plus some amplifiers, which I think is the interesting thing about some of these sleeper norms and how it seems like it's overnight, but it's really sort of a decade or more in the making. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think that if you look at what we're what we're doing in teaching in a program like ours, you know, I would encourage folks to recognize deviants that are out there like Me Too was. You know, it was just, it was almost like a, a rare species just waiting to be found by the right genetic engineer and say, okay, look, this very, you know, this very special gene we could use to change the entire world. If I think about what we're trying to do with the book, it really is to cut off those 10 years and say, okay, there are people out there behaving the way we want everyone to behave. How can we understand what that behavior is and accelerate it? So a couple more shifting norms that I've been noticing. One is the backlash against what people have dubbed manals, the all-male panels at conferences. Yeah, sure. And then another one is people declaring their pronouns, right, as a way of including and solidarity with trans people. So rather than assuming what somebody's gender is, regardless if you're cis or trans, you can say if you want to be called he or they or whatever you'd like, yeah. right? And it's certainly an outlier in probably the progressive circles in New York City that I'm in. But it's interesting how the logic of that is to, to shift the norm about assumptions of gender. Are there other sort of emergent norms that you'd like to point out? I'll give you one. This is happening in the news right now which is political shunning. Is it acceptable to deny service to a public figure based on their political associations? And I think that it, it makes sense to ask why it was not this way previously and how it could function in the future. I think that there are norms around spaces of commerce in the United States that have made them a kind of public space, which, you know, the civil rights movement addressed very effectively. If you look at a different arena, like who would you be happy about your kids dating? That's not considered a public arena. If you look at statistics on the, the question, you know, would you, would you be happy if your child were dating somebody from the opposite political party? That is just cratered. Right. right. People's ideas of, you know, would it be acceptable for my, you know, my son to date a Republican, my daughter to date a Democrat, whatever it is, um, it's just completely fallen apart. But somebody from a different race or ethnic group seems to be more acceptable in a lot of quarters, whereas the political divide seems to have increased. Much, much more than it was. So religion tends to be still pretty divisive in those categories. But so actually that that to me is an example of the future dynamic in action because we're talking about an imaginary future event and people's expectations around it. And you have the same question around, you know, would you be, you know, would you find a Muslim president acceptable? That kind of question, right? It's a completely hypothetical future scenario, but the truth about people's attitudes comes out in a way that, that it might not before. When we talk about the future dynamic, what we're really interested in is expectation. Future is actually my, my go-to dynamic. If I only have kind of one weapon, I'll ask people, where do you see all this going? Normally the, the truth about what they think about it comes tumbling out. Anyway, to go back to the, your question about the emerging norm, 
norm. We've all we've got all sorts of norms changing around shunning and shame, mainly because of the public visibility of the internet. And that's a limits change, in fact. The fact that you know, if someone is denied service at a fast food restaurant on the other side of the country, suddenly we can all have an opinion about it and register our like or dislike of that fast food restaurant. That was a completely meaningless, an absurd scenario 20 years ago. I would say that that's contributing to whatever shift in norms is going on there. So in terms of near futures, how can people learn more about C-Think Solve and the innovation dynamics? Sure. Well, the easiest approach is just to uh, to get and read the book. It's on Kindle. You can get it through paperback, all on Amazon or through seethinksolve.com. And it is designed to be easily read and absorbed in one sitting. It is a simple book. I would say that the advantage of reading it, what will result from reading it, is seeing these things around you. I would say that for, for further steps, for folks who want to do more, the best thing to do would be to reach out to me or my co-author um, through the website. We believe that there are many particular applications of this way of thinking in healthcare, in policy, in business, and design. And that's what we're really looking forward to exploring next, is seeing how can we take this set of ideas and apply it in different fields. Right now, the thing that I know the most about through my faculty role at USC is applying this to big social change efforts through, I would say, the, the lens of organizations and management and strategy, because that's, that's who we train, is people who are going to run big organizations. But I think that even if you are just a, a kid wondering how to make you know, an impact on the world, seeing these kinds of things would open up new options for you. So I, I hope everyone reads it. So again, that's seethinksolve.com and we'll post a link on the podcast page. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Sure. Uh, and thanks for designing the book, Lishan. Trying to convey this stuff visually is so important because it's all so abstract. Even like the choice of colors that you guys made for the, for the cover, I'm just in love with. So thank you so much. And thank you for listening. You can find FusaPod on Apple Podcasts, Android, and at fusa.com slash podcast, where you can also find a transcript and links that we've referenced. Please leave us a review. We would love to hear from you. FusaPod is a production of FUSA, a creative consultancy that works for and with communities to tell stories, design services, and build new forms of shared value. Music this episode is a track called Lightning Strikes by Jared Reed. And here to take us out, President Barack Obama from his second inaugural address, which Andrew mentioned in the episode. Once again, I'm Lee Sean Huang. Until next time. We, the people, declare today that the most evident of truths, that all of us are created equal, is the star that guides us still, just as it guided our forebears through Seneca Falls and Selma and Stonewall, just as it guided all those men and women, sung and unsung, who left footprints along this great mall, to hear a preacher say that we cannot walk alone, to hear a king proclaim that our individual freedom is inextricably bound to the freedom of every soul on earth.